All right, I want to kick off today with a famous 20th century scandal. So uh, here's a picture from uh, 1867. No, the other one. Yes, that one. Here's a picture from 1867. It's the very first marketing image from a Frenchman called Henri Nestlé. You probably can't see it that well, uh, but this is his first flyer for a product he started marketing uh, called Nestlé's Milk Food for Infants. Um, and it's still on sale today, uh, although now we call it Formula. So um, here we see this exciting new product hitting the world stage for the first time in this beautiful marketing image. Uh, the ethereal mother uh, dishing out life to her ruddy and cherubic infant out of a can that could be made of solid gold um, against the backdrop of uh, winged creatures hovering over a stained glass window. It looks like food from heaven. So this is skillful marketing, and at the time it had a very powerful effect. Um, now, at the time that it was released, formula was a life-saving invention because babies at the time were dying of malnutrition. Um, and if they couldn't be breastfed for whatever reason, there wasn't really anything else that was healthy for them to eat. Cow's milk is hard for babies to digest, and in 1867, it was still mostly unpasteurized. So Nestle came to the rescue. Uh, and as you probably know, his milk food for infants became wildly successful and popular and the Nestle company grew enormously wealthy and powerful. Today, Formula is an $11.5 billion market worldwide. Uh, I think it's a good product, uh, very important in a lot of people's lives, including our lives when our children were little. Um, but in the mid-20th century, there was a huge scandal around the Nestle company, and it was over this particular product, because the company was aggressively marketing its formula to developing nations and trying to convince mothers in poor rural communities to stop breastfeeding and make the switch to formula. The marketing argued that formula was better and healthier for babies and that if these mothers really loved their children, they should cough up the extra money. So Nestle created a need where none had previously existed. It convinced naive young mothers that its products were indispensable and it preyed upon their insecurities for profit. And then it turns out that all the while, the Nestle company knew that its product was killing children. In 1974, an organization called War on Want published a booklet called The Baby Killer that blew the lid off the formula industry. And it exposed research that Nestle knew about that mothers in developing nations were diluting its formula with polluted water. And this practice, in combination with the loss of natural antibodies from breast milk, meant that formula-fed babies in developing nations were six times more likely to die in infancy than breastfed babies. Another report estimated that 1.2 million infant deaths could be directly attributed to Nestle's aggressive marketing of formula in the developing world. And no surprise, that sparked national outrage in England and other European countries. So here's a poster from 1981 after that scandal had firmly taken hold. It says, profits are up, so is infant malnutrition, boycott Nestle. And while I was growing up in England, people all, all around me were full of this outrage and were calling for a complete boycott of all of Nestle's products Except for Kit Kat, obviously. <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never get Brits to give that up. 
Um, anyway, we can get rid of these images now. Um, I share this story to give us an illustration of false advertising. We've all grown up in a world where thousands of products are mercilessly plied upon us dozens of times a day, and we're used to the lies and the spin and the tricks that advertisers use. And most of the time, it's innocent enough. But just occasionally, this kind of marketing is truly predatory, which is what we find in Proverbs chapter 9. So please look up Proverbs 9 in your Bibles on page 533. Proverbs 9, 533. So in this chapter, we meet with two women. We meet with Lady Wisdom at the beginning and at the end with Dame Folly. Uh, and they're both advertising a product to people in the streets. And Lady Wisdom, on the one hand, offers people something very good and life-giving, while Dame Folly is peddling something very harmful. So let's see what the two women have to say. Uh, so look at Proverbs 9 and verse 4. Lady Wisdom's message is, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And then look down at verse 16. Here's Dame's Folly's message. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Their invitations are identical. They both have the same target audience, people who are simple. And that word means naive or credulous. It's people who aren't really bad, just a bit clueless, who don't have much in the way of street smarts and don't deeply understand the difference between good and evil. These people are the target audience of both Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly, although maybe the two women shouldn't have made that part of their advertising slogans <laughs> because no one likes to admit that they're simple, right? Uh, and uh, if you're going to peddle a product, you don't start off by insulting the customer. Uh, that's not how Coca-Cola does it. All you who are too ignorant to worry about all that sugar, sodium, and acid, and what it might do to your gut, share a Coke and a smile. Anyway, both Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly use this same language, so their advertising approach is the same. But the similarity between them ends there. So let's look at their products. In verses 1 through 6, we hear about the product that Lady Wisdom has on offer. And what she's offering is a sumptuous meal. She has prepared a glittering banquet hall built on seven hand-carved pillars. She's laid out her tables and festooned them with white cloths and napkins, flowers, candles, bone china plates, and highly polished silver. She's gone and baked her own bread, and she's prepared the meat from several animals from her own farm. She's even mixed her own wine with time and care and attention to detail and sustained effort. Lady Wisdom has prepared a feast fit for a king's wedding. And now she sends out her attendants, her young women, to the highest places of the town to invite any who will come to share in her banquet. She has a really quality product. And her attendants, when they go out, even seem to undersell it. Because in verse 5, they only say, come and eat of my bread. When actually, there's far more than bread on offer. There's a feast of meats. So the details of Lady Wisdom's feast suggest that she's wealthy and prosperous. She has her own farm and her own vineyard, and she employs a team of servants. But she uses her wealth to bless others who are less fortunate. She wants to share her bounty far and wide and to invite any and all to come in and taste her banquet. So she's both wealthy and generous. 
but not so with Dame Folly. So we'll skip over the middle verses of the chapter and look down to verse 13, to the uh, back, back end of the chapter. Verse 13, it says, The woman folly is loud. <laughs> the woman folly is loud. Uh, and in the Hebrew, that's a really great word. There are lots of ways to, uh, to translate this word for loud, and all of them are negative. So it can mean noisy, clamorous, uproarious, boisterous, enraged, or troubled. It's used to describe the noise of battle, or riots in the streets, or storms at sea. In other words, when chaos makes a sound, it makes this sound. The woman folly is loud. Uh, verse 13 also says she's seductive and knows nothing. So what kind of product is she peddling? Well, it's another kind of meal, but a very unsatisfying one. Dame Folly has no banquet hall, no servants, no tables, and no bone china. Instead of mixed wine, she's serving up stolen water. <laughs> and instead of choice meats, it's bread that has to be eaten in secret. And we can only imagine why. So she is offering a kind of meal, but it's a very deceptive offer. Her advertising promises much more than she can deliver. She seduces her prey with the words, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. So she entices them only so she can devour them, right? The truth is that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Her house is home of the dead. So she invites innocent people to a meal only to make a meal out of them. There's a scene a bit like this in the story of Jemima Puddleduck by Beatrix Potter. Maybe you read the story when you were a kid. Jemima Puddleduck is a simple-minded duck who leaves her farm to find a quiet nesting ground to hatch her own eggs. But in the woods, she meets a crafty fox who seems very charming, like a very charming gentleman. And after winning her trust, the fox invites Jemima to a dinner party, and she accepts, little knowing that she herself is going to be the main course. So my children listen to a musical version of this story, and there's a song about the fox's invitation. And whoever wrote the song had some fun with the lyrics. Because uh, the fox sings, I'll have you for dinner. Madam, it's you for me. You'll find it sublime. I'll stuff you with time. Oh, what hospitality. I'll have you for dinner. You are my favorite dish. Right up to your knees in tasty green peas. What more could a nice girl wish? Only the best will be good enough. Good enough for you. I'll shower you, of course, with the best applesauce and a real Spanish onion or two. I'll have you for dinner. You'll get your desserts with me. Au fait, foble mange. I'll have you à l'orange. Perfect gastronomy. This will be bliss indeed. You will be all I need. And I find that song quite wonderful and quite a clever little illustration of the seductiveness of folly. It preys upon our own vanity and greed and desire to lure us into the den where we will be eaten. The song is funny when it's about a naive duck, but of course when we start talking about this being done to people, it stops being funny and becomes horrifying. It's a kind of predatory advertising that's far more outrageous than Nestle's in the 1970s, and it's been even more effective 
with hundreds of millions of casualties. So if Lady Wisdom is wealthy and generous and an embodiment of love, then Dame Folly is destitute and predatory, an embodiment of hatred. Stephen King has written of no horrors worse than those committed in Dame Folly's house. So this is a very sober and serious word to us because, of course, we realize that we're in this chapter. We're in Proverbs chapter 9. You and I are the simple people out in the streets. Whether or not we like to admit it, that's what we are. We're as simple and vain as Jemima Paddleduck, an easy prey for a crafty fox. So we need to know our choices and to have enough wisdom to choose the right place to have dinner. The first lesson of Proverbs 9 is that there are two choices set out before us, not just one. I think some of us choose to dine at the house of folly because we think she's the only person who's offering us a meal. And if we're starving, we'll take any offer of food we can get. But no, that's not true. There are two choices and not just one. We need to hear wisdom's voice in this chapter as well as follies. Wisdom is offering us a meal too, and a much better meal. The second lesson of Proverbs 9 is that it might be hard for simple people to tell the difference between Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly, because they both address us with the same words, don't they? They both say, let all who are simple enter here. How are we to know the difference? How are we to know which to trust? Of course Dame Folly is going to masquerade as our friend. Of course she lies and seduces, showing us the bait while hiding the hook. How would she trap us otherwise? So how are the simple supposed to tell the difference between the kind offer and the trap? Well, we're given three pointers for deciding which house is the house of wisdom. We've got the work, the light, and the commands of God. Okay? I'm going to close with these three. First, the work. Lady Wisdom is hardworking and Dame Folly is idle. Hard work produces a beautiful banquet hall and a sumptuous feast, but all idleness can offer is stolen water. So, that's a good tell. If an idea comes to you that seems to offer you the reward without the work, the chances are that's an invitation from Dame Folly. Lotteries and scratch cards and casinos are the house of folly, the promise of a quick reward without the work. Heavy borrowing and debt to fund a lavish lifestyle are the house of folly. Casual sex, adultery, and prostitution and pornography are the house of folly, the promise of instant satisfaction without the covenant or the relational work. And heavy drinking and mind-altering recreational drugs are the house of folly, the promise of happiness detached from reality. If a voice in your life promises you easy street, all the rewards and none of the work, you can be pretty sure that's a snare, that Dane Folly is seducing you. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So we saw when we read the Gospel that when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, all three of his promises and temptations were there to get Jesus to take the easy way out. Free bread out of a rock, glory without obedience, and a kingdom without a cross. That's the way his temptations come. So the work can be a useful tell, but it's not foolproof. It's a good start, but it's not foolproof. The second pointer is stronger, the light, the light. Dame Folly hides in the shadows, and her invitations are always 
to come in and hide with her. So in Proverbs 9, verse 17, she says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And if you followed her into the house of folly, then you're going to want to hide it. You're not going to want to tell anyone about it. You're going to prefer that it stay in the darkness and not come into the light. And you might even be willing to lie to keep your secret hidden. And this is a very powerful tale because even simple people like us are good at distinguishing darkness from light in our own hearts. We're good at recognizing when there's a need to keep something secret. It's part of our self-protection protocols. Whenever we're tempted to do something and not tell anyone, that's the house of folly. And if we ever catch ourselves lying about it to keep it hidden, that's definitely the house of folly, and we're in serious danger at that point. Let me remind you of 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. John wrote this. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Did you hear that? We're cleansed from sin if, we walk in the light. That means if we confess our sins and bring them out into the open, if we tell not only God, but also any other people who ought to know. Let me warn you very seriously about this because God is not mocked. If you have done something that you know was wrong and you're still lying to another person and pretending you didn't do it, you are not forgiven by God. You are not walking in the light and the blood of Jesus does not cover you. If you're still hiding in the darkness, then you're still living in the house of folly and your future is very bleak. Proverbs 9 verse 18 says, The dead are there and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You're also going to feel very lonely. The darkness is an extremely lonely place because everyone there is hiding from each other. It's only when we come out into the light that John promises that we can have fellowship with one another. The good news is that while you still draw breath, it's never too late to leave Dame Folly's house. It's not too late to come out of the darkness and into the light. And coming into the light doesn't mean we all have to stand up here in the front of the church and tell each other the worst things we've ever done. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to come and tell me or Taylor. Sometimes it's the sort of thing we need to know, but other times not. But the people closest to you and the people affected need to know the truth. And if we've lied to someone to protect ourselves, we can't come into the light until we've come clean and told that person the truth. John promises that all who do that find forgiveness with Jesus. No one follows Jesus out into the light without having all of their sins covered by him. Jesus covers everything that we're willing to expose, but he exposes everything we try to cover. So the light is the second tell, and it's a very useful one. And finally, the third pointer is the commands of God. As we've said before in this Proverbs series, the word of God makes us wise. The word of God forearms us against the schemes of Dame Folly. In this case, she said, stolen water is sweet. But the Word of God teaches us that stolen water is not sweet. 
God commanded his people, you shall not steal. And he showed them in the story of Adam and Eve how sweet it was to steal. The stolen fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was doubtless the bitterest tasting fruit in the garden. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, he survived the temptation by leaning hard on the commands of God. And we too will be forewarned and forearmed against Dame Folly if we know God's word well. The Bible is not a history textbook of passing interest to nerdy academics. It's a military training manual for our survival. And I hope you've been made aware in recent weeks of the kind of world we're living in and the kind of attacks to our faith and lives we can expect. So don't be naive. Don't settle to stay simple. Arm yourself with the commands of God so you won't be easy prey for the fox who wants to have you for dinner. Amen.